Thrive, the Eastern Health Junior Doctors Medical Education Podcast. Thrive is brought to you by a team of junior doctors asking great questions and producing essential education. In 2022, we're excited to bring you more content and help you become a more confident, capable doctor. I'm Emma, an ED physician and supervisor of junior doctor training at Eastern Health, and I love seeing junior doctors grow. So let's jump right in. Hi everyone, I'm Tasha, a basic physician trainee at Eastern Health, and I'm excited to talk to some of our amazing senior doctors to discuss more specialty medicine. Today, I'm glad to invite back Dr. Mina Nagarithanam, a hematology advanced trainee at Box Hill Hospital, to talk to us about the hemolytic screen. The hemolytic screen is a group of tests used to determine the presence of hemolytic anemia and looks for various causes of hemolysis. Given that hemolytic conditions can range from chronic and benign to acute and life-threatening, they can sometimes get tricky to interpret and act upon, particularly during cover shifts. Mina, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you, Dusha. Um, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here today. Oh, anytime, Mina. It's always great to have you on our program. Now, last time we had a chat about iron studies, and I think for this podcast, we might delve more into the hemolytic screen. So this is another very common test used to investigate anemia, particularly normocytic anemia. So to begin with, could you maybe go through what sorts of tests make up the hemolytic screen? So um, let's talk about hemolysis. So Hemolysis um, is basically the premature breakdown of red cells before their normal span, a normal lifespan, which is about 120 days. And um, hemolytic screen on its own is a group of pathology tests, which is usually used to diagnose hemolysis and screen for some of the causes of hemolysis. And um, this should be ordered in any patients who are suspected of having hemolysis, which may be clinically apparent from features of anemia uh, in patients without iron depletion or any sort of bleeding evidence, and also in patients who've got jaundice or dark urine. And also it's important to to identify um, if patients have anemia, which coincides with the recent commencement of new medications or even blood transfusion. So that's important to uh, look out for, as well as those with family history of hemolytic disorders and patients with organomegaly, mainly in the form of hepatomegaly or splenomegaly. And uh, this usually indicates more chronic hemolysis, but these are some of the things to look out for um, clinically before ordering a hemolytic screen. And um, in regards to the um, different components of the hemolytic screen, so there are a few tests which mix up the hemolytic screen. Often we forget to do a few of them. So I'll start from the basics. So the the first most important test would be the full blood count. And this usually allows for diagnosis of anemia and then comes the heptoglobin levels. So heptoglobin is basically a protein which mops up free hemoglobin levels in the blood. Um, sorry, it mops up free hemoglobin in the blood and, um, and usually it is reduced um, in hemolysis. And, um, and this is mainly because the heptoglobin binds to the increased levels of hemoglobin in the blood, which is from hemolysis. And then there is also the lactate dehydrogenase level, which is usually raised in hemolysis. And this is because the red cells themselves release a lot of LDH mm-hmm. during hemolysis. 
And then moving on, the next test that's important is the reticulocyte count. So these are basically immature red cells, and they are usually elevated in a hemolysis. And this basically suggests that the bone marrow is actively working to produce red cells in response to a peripheral anemia. And then there are also other tests which are quite important, mainly to figure out the cause of hemolysis. And this includes the uh, Coombs test, which is also known as the direct antiglobulin test. And what it does is it usually identifies the presence of autoantibodies against the red cell membrane. Um, and that usually suggests to us that there is an autoimmune process going on. And then um, last but not least, um, it's also important to look at a blood film if someone is uh, um, suspicious of having a hemolytic episode. So a blood film tells us a lot of information. So it basically assesses the morphology of the red cell to identify if there is hemolysis. And some of the um, important findings to suggest hemolysis includes uh, red cell fragments, and it can also give information as to what the potential cause might be, um, such as schistocytes. These are, cell, uh, these are findings which may suggest underlying microangiopathy. And then there's also spherocytes, which suggest that there is a red cell membrane defect. So these are some of the things to think about and uh, uh, order if someone is, um, if a patient um, is suspicious of having um, hemolysis. Yeah, right. And it can be quite difficult to remember all the different components of the screen. So I like to divide them into three categories with the acronym LAB, L-A-B. So L stands for lysis. Um, these are any tests that indicate hemolysis is occurring, like bilirubin, haptoglobin, and LDH. The A is autoimmune, which reminds me to order the direct Coombs test, or the DAT. And finally, we've got B, which is blood, um, which for me represents all the different what I call blood-related stuff, so FBE, reticular site count, and the blood film. Um, obviously, all of these tests are blood-related, but that's just the technique I use to help me remember the different components. That's right, yes. Let's move on to interpretation now. Do you have any advice about how to interpret the hemolytic screen and what sorts of clinical syndromes they might correlate with? Yeah, so um, on the whole, I think it's important to have... Um, um, a mind map of uh, what the causes could be. So it can basically be simplified by thinking about the different causes of hemolysis. So um, hemolysis itself can be divided into two different categories. So there are the hereditary causes and also the acquired causes. And under the acquired causes of hemolysis, there is the autoimmune and also the non-immune hemolytic anemia. So I'll talk a bit about the hereditary causes. So um, some of the causes of hemolysis uh, can be hereditary, uh, which means patients are born with a hereditary hemoglobin conditions, and it is usually a red cell membrane defect, such as hereditary spherocytosis, elliptocytosis, or even in the form of enzyme deficiencies. So um, the most common ones are G6PD deficiency or even pyruvate kinase deficiency. So these are some of the enzymes which are quite important um, in preventing um, early red cell breakdown. And uh, if patients are born with the um, enzyme deficiencies, then I think uh, um, it's important to know that this could be a hereditary cause of hemolysis. And then there is also other um, different types of um, 
genetic conditions such as uh, those with uh, abnormal um, hemoglobin production such as sickle cell disease and thalassemia and uh, these can um, these causes can actually be quite apparent from the blood phlegm and the full blood count uh, and they might actually require further genetic testing so that comes under the umbrella of the hereditary hemolytic causes and then we've also got the acquired causes so over time patients acquire um, different conditions and uh, this can then be divided into autoimmune hemolytic anemia uh, which is further subdivided into warm and cold autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And this is usually classified according to the um, binding temperature to the red cells. So I won't go so much, um, I won't go into details of the types of um, uh, immune uh, hemolytic anemia because um, um, that's a total different topic altogether. But then it's important to know that um, there is two different types and it is um, antibody mediated. And uh, these are some of the causes that can be considered if the direct antiglobulin test, which I've mentioned earlier, the Coombs test comes back positive. And then there's also um, um, uh, the test which tells you whether it's uh, strongly positive or, or um, low positive. And, and that, that's, um, um, that's a story for another day. But this is something that we normally look at to see the strength of the autoantibody. And then there is also the um, non-immune hemolytic anemia in the setting of infections, sepsis, such as um, uh, malaria. And then there's also the drug-induced causes, especially with anti-malarial drugs and also mechanical um, hemolytic anemia, which can happen in the setting of a prosthetic valve. And um, there are also acquired membrane disorders, and the most common one is the paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, also known as PNH. Um, sometimes um, hypersplenism can also cause um, a, a hemolysis to a certain degree, and this usually requires further testing in addition to the hemolytic screen, but can be identified through history and examination screening for risk factors. So, um, the, this is the uh, main classification um, to remember, and um, and then and then we can go into details um, in a different um, lecture altogether. But these are some of the things to remember. And if the hemolytic screen is positive, would you expect junior doctors to flag that with hematology, um, particularly because some of the causes can require quite specific management? Yes, definitely. I think um, I think in this sort of scenarios, especially once hemolysis has been identified, I think uh, some of the features which are quite concerning would be if the patient is hemodynamically unstable or anyone with an acute thrombosis or even active bleeding that is difficult to control. And um, overall, if they are unwell looking, I think it's important to escalate this to a hematology um, doctor or, or even the hematology team. And in terms of uh, pathology itself, I think it's important to identify if the patient has any evidence of acute renal failure or if the hemoglobin levels are acutely um, um, dropping, uh, especially if it's less than 70 despite ongoing transfusions and if there are high number of schistocytes on the blood smear. And um, with all this that I've talked about, there's also some serious causes of hemolysis, which, um, which is considered a hematological emergency, especially uh, with microangiopathies such as um, 
Um, in short, we call it TTP. It stands for thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura and, um, and also hemolytic uremic syndrome as well as DIC, which stands for disseminated intravascular coagulation. So these are hematological um, emergencies which needs to be um, identified quick enough uh, for a prompt um, management. So um, if uh, so like I mentioned earlier, if um, if a patient is hemodynamically unstable with ongoing active bleeding despite transfusion, I think it's important to escalate this to a hematology registrar or even the hematology team um, in order to get um, uh, advice on what to do next. And uh, sometimes even transfusion reactions, this, this can um, uh, manifest in the form of acute hemolytic transfusion reactions and um, even and also severe sepsis, like I mentioned before, uh, particularly malaria uh, with high parasite count. Um, I think um, it's important it's important to keep in mind these are some of the um, serious causes that needs to be excluded if if uh, if a patient um, overall looks unwell and um, and is hemodynamically unstable. So um, yeah, these are some of the things to look out for. Yeah, those are all really good points. Mina, I think you've done a wonderful job at summarising the hemolytic screen and hemolysis. It certainly is a very broad and complicated topic, but I think the advice you've given will still provide some confidence to junior doctors like myself at managing these cases. Um, did you have any other suggestions about other useful resources? When I was a junior doctor, I always had the Oxford Clinical Medicine book with me, which summarizes um, what to look out for and um, when to escalate. And um, it basically talks about the clinical features of different types of anemia. I think uh, that was a good uh, pocket handbook to have um, and, um, and also um, up to date, uh, by all means, is a, is a good um, avenue and, and a good database for um, this sort of um, hematological issues. Yeah, definitely. I think the Oxford Handbook has saved me a couple of times during my cover shifts as well. So I think that's a great resource. And um, obviously for all our listeners, we will include a link to the up-to-date article discussing investigation of hemolytic anemia as well, if they want further details about the topic. Um, Mina, it's always a pleasure having you at Thrive, and I can't wait to have more discussions with you about hematology in the future. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Thrive. Don't forget you can access show notes for this podcast through Workplace. Log in with your Eastern Health email address and password and search for the Thrive Group. This is your education. Please get in touch and let us know how we're doing meeting your needs, ask us a question or suggest a topic you'd love to hear us cover. You may also be interested in producing a podcast with us in your area of specialty interest. It's great CV building and an excellent start in medical education. You can contact us at thrive at easternhealth.org.au. We'd love to hear from you.